1: Thank you, like Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 347th edition of Talked in Tuesday. Today's broadcast is presented by the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA as we know them, and joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and happy Election Day, everyone.
1: Yeah, good, thanks. This morning, our least stories about burnout and PTSD experienced by emergency room physicians. You were once one of them, weren't you?
2: Yes, and there are many factors which enter into emergency physician burnout. I was thinking about how intense working in the ED was a week ago Saturday.
1: Indeed. You know, it seems that it's not so much the trauma associated with caregiving in the ED, but more about the infrastructure issues like administrative burdens that takes them away from patient care.
2: That's true. My friend, Dr. Tracy Sanson, a practicing emergency room physician and consultant, will be reporting our lead story.
1: And what's the future of clinical documentation integrity? Mel Tully with Nuance will report on the evolution of CDI.
2: And Julie Dooling with AHIMA will report on the challenges being faced by HIM professionals in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael.
1: And standing by to report on the release last week by CMS of the final rules for 2019, is Stanley Nockmson. We have much news to report this morning, and we begin with ICD 10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on using the 2019 CC and MCC list to capture accurate clinical documentation and avoid audits. That webcast is Wednesday, November 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here it Tim Powell. Hey, Chuck. Uh, thanks. And
3: I'm going to try to get through as much as I can. On November 1st, the Center for Medicare Services, Medicare, issued a final rule that includes updates to payment policies, payment rates, and quality provisions uh, under the physician fee schedule for services provided on or after January 1st of 2019 and I like to call this the beware of Greeks bearing presence uh, rule, is Medicare, when they have something bad to do, they break it up into a three-year period and they make it sound wonderful at the start. So the first two years is an easing of evaluation and management rules that include uh, an um, elimination of the requirement to document medical necessity for home visits, uh, allowing physicians to, uh, and practitioners to focus their documentation on what has changed since the last visit, uh, allowing physicians not to have to reenter the medical and the medical record, uh, the patient's chief complaint, and to allow documentation from uh, other professionals that have touched the medical record to be included in the documentation used for coding. And on the bad side of this, and, and where now the uh, uh, soldiers start pouring out of the horse, beginning in 2021, uh, CMS will further reduce the burden of implementing payment coding and documentation by uh, reducing and changing the payments for levels two through four uh, for established and new patients uh, and reducing them into a single payment level. So while on one hand they are allowing practitioners to uh, reduce the amount of documentation, uh, they are also reducing the payment level. So for all of the physicians that have been coding all of their, their claims as, as the highest level of necessity and coding a lot of fours, um, I have to say, CMS has heard you and this is their response. So we'll see what happens in between now and 2021. So on one hand, uh, the argument is there's a, a lot of reduction in payment. On the other hand, uh, there's an easing of the of the rules. Um, there's uh, just very quickly, there's also uh, an allowance for physical therapies uh, uh, furnished by therapy assistants um to bill for their services there's a big change for the clinical fee schedule for laboratory payments uh there's also um, an extension of the ambulance payments the amb- ambulance add-on and uh with that i'm going to kick this back to chuck with the request that i allowed to be allowed to fill in more fully next week and with that back to you chuck
1: Thanks, Tim, so very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD ten monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, November the sixth. It's election day twenty eighteen, and you're listening to the three hundred and forty-seventh edition of Tucked
0: In Tuesday. Stand by Are you looking for a reliable solution to answer your toughest coding questions? You need a HEMAS code check service. Unlike any other service, AHIMA's CodeCheck is unique, combining ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, CPT, and Hickspix classification systems into a single solution with one business day turnaround. It provides the industry with a single location for expert coding support. With the new online portal, you can control access for staff members, build a library of answers, share answers, upload supporting documentation, gain insight into knowledge gaps, and more. Learn how Ahima's code check can benefit your organization at slash code check.
1: Here now, with the latest regulatory news coming out of Washington, is healthcare. IT expert Stanley Nakasin with the Talk 10 Tuesday Reg Watch. And Stanley, good morning. It seems like CMS was kind of working overtime last week.
4: Absolutely, Chuck. A, a lot of news coming out, and to follow up and build on what Tim said. Um, The agency has been busy uh, the last few weeks getting the approval, uh, final approval for, and publishing quite a number of critical final rules that have an impact on documentation, coding, and payments for a number of different types of providers. Some of the rules had to do with reducing the prices of drugs uh, and make changes to the insurance programs under the Affordable Care Act. However, for our audience, the keys were the final rules for the 2019 Physician Fee Schedule and Quality Program, the hospital outpatient PPS rule, and the ASC payment policy rule, as well as the home health PPS system update. Uh, These rules contain a number of provisions, not only for 2019 payments, but for several years after that. Uh, and CMS keeps emphasizing that these rules reflect a broader administrative wide strategy, I'm quoting here, to create a healthcare system that results in better accessibility, quality, affordability, empowerment, and innovation. Uh, that's the end of the quote from CMS. I will point out that uh, these rules uh, were changed significantly from the proposals based on the comments that were received by CMS during the. Uh, comment period. I, I've emphasized a number of times to our audience the importance of sending in public comments, and these final rules reflect the results of that. So please, as you see a proposed rule and you've got some concern with it, let CMS know they do respond to answers. CMS spent a lot of time trying to reduce burden and increase interoperability uh, for uh, providers, and let me get into some of the details. In addition to what Tim already mentioned, uh, for uh, 2019 um, and beyond in terms of E&M coding. Um, They also are uh, including an implementation of add-on codes that describe additional resources inherent in visits for primary care and particular kinds of non-procedural specialized medical care. And they're also permitting practitioners, again, 2021 and beyond, to choose uh, to document their E&M office visits, and outpatient level two through five visits using medical decision-making or time instead of applying the current E&M documentation guidelines, or alternatively, they can continue using the current framework. Uh, so there are um, some changes into to E&M coding. They've also allowed coding and payment for telehealth and communication technology starting in 2019. Two newly defined physician services furnished using communication technology, brief communication technology-based service, for example, a virtual check-in, which is a HCPCS code G2012, and remote evaluation of recorded video and or images submitted by an established patient, HCPCS code G2010. They've also added the following codes to the list of telehealth services, Hickfix codes G0513 uh, and 0514. Uh, they've updated the MIPS uh, rule. Uh, they've added in clinicians who are physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, audiologists, clini- clinical psychologists, and registered dietitian or nutrition professionals. They've simplified the scoring process, and they've um, changed the EH- EHR requirements to promote interoperability. Uh, <clears throat> the outpatient PPS rule, very critical here, they are applying a physician fee schedule equivalent payment rate for clinic visit services when they are provided at an off-campus provider-based department paid under the outpatient uh, PPS system. CMS uh, estimates this will result in lower copayments for beneficiaries and savings for the Medicare program in an estimated amount of $380 million uh, for 2019. They've added a number of covered surgical procedures, uh, to the list of things that can be done in, in ASCs um, and uh, have not taken away any, so there will be uh, some things uh, moving from a hospital outpatient to ASCs and physician offices. And one, one minor item, the American Hospital Association has also stated its intent to file a lawsuit against CMS for this equivalent payment rate provisions. There's lots more, and I will turn it back to you. Erica, thanks. Thanks. Thank you,
2: Stanley. That was Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC.
1: Chuck? Thanks, Erica. Thank you very much, Stanley, for a very comprehensive report. Our Tuesday focuses on the challenges faced by H.I.M. professionals in the light of devastation. Recently brought about by Hurricane Michael. Here now with that report is Julie Dooling.
5: Thanks, Chuck.
6: Appreciate it. Um, You know, collectively, we continue to learn uh, from each other in our experiences with disaster and medical records. You know, when we look back to Katrina in August of 2005, I think that was a really big, huge wake-up call for the industry. At that time, it was reported that a total of 400,000 paper records were destroyed in just a matter of hours. And this was a time that EHRs and HIE, Health Information Exchange, were only beginning to take shape. So let's fast forward to May of 2011 when an F5 tornado destroyed a hospital in Joplin, Missouri. And we had further progress here, because fortunately, this hospital system had been actively archiving their medical records, and they had just migrated their data to an off-site data center, uh, you know a few hundred miles away. And then, of course, recently, the devastation by Hurricane Michael, where it destroyed facilities and affected patients in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. This time, however, we see the reports of how local and regional HIE in these areas work together to create a wider emergency network and provide important documentation that was stored in the HIE to aid continuity of care. So that's good. So, you know, this is success. We need to celebrate the success. It may be a little bit longer than we had wished, but um, nevertheless, it is We should celebrate it, and we should, I would encourage everybody to be a champion in your organization to uh, foster better sharing through health information exchange and make sure that you know what's going on with disaster planning in your facility. So what are some of the best practices? AHEMA has a detailed disaster toolkit that can be accessed through our body of knowledge. It's uh, currently under update again. It'll um, have a new version out this next year. So just as a reminder, when planning, uh, the first order of business for disaster planning in your organization should be the, the creation and maintenance of a comprehensive iterative plan known as the business continuity plan. Um, and this, again, detailed in the toolkit, but these are the areas, risk assessment and analysis, downtime and contingency planning, disaster recovery plan, data backup plan, and then your emergency or crisis management plan. And I will say with that one, just make sure that you have lined out what the minimal documentation requirements are for the the crisis. And then the last minute or so, um, I want to just talk about um, HIPAA, because there always seems to be some confusion around this when there are disasters, and rightly so, because it's a chaotic time. But first of all, the privacy rule is not suspended during a public health emergency. But the Secretary of HHS, now Alex Azar, may waive certain provisions. So the first thing that your organization needs to do is um, contact a your regional or a national or the national OCR office as soon as possible to inquire about a HIPAA waiver and its use in your particular situation. Also, any PHI necessary to treat a patient may be shared in an emergency without authorization. If the patient has a personal representative, PHI may be shared as if they were the patient. And then finally, The Office of Civil Rights provides comprehensive guidance and bulletins regarding emergency responses, and we saw this with um, Hurricane Michael. They released a bulletin indicating a waiver up to 72 hours from the time the hospital implements its disaster protocol. So this waives sanctions and penalties under the HIPAA privacy rule that may not otherwise be applied, such as asking patients to agree or object with sharing information in the end, We want to make sure that information shared during this time should be as fluid as possible. So that's it. I appreciate the time, and I'm going to toss it back to you, Erica. Thanks, Julie. That was Julie Dooling. Julie is director at AHEMA. Chuck?
1: Thank you, Erica, and thanks very much, Julie, for being on the broadcast. We look forward to your returning again. So what does the future of clinical documentation integrity look like? Mel Tuller reports on the evolution of CDI. Good morning, Mel. Welcome to the broadcast.
7: Good morning. My pleasure. I'm going to talk about the clinical documentation integrity evolution, just as Chuck said, and I think we can all agree that over the years, and I've been in this business for 20 years now on improving clinical documentation, there's certainly been a significant evolution. At the beginning of CDI efforts and um, The documentation specialists were focused on correcting the hospital's case mix index, wanting to improve reimbursements and adding specificity to coding. But today, CDI is an integrated interdisciplinary function that can affect millions of dollars in revenue. But most importantly, these programs have a direct impact on quality patient care. Anybody that knows me uh, knows that I'm a strong, strong advocate for an accurate clinical story. Every patient deserves that. So CDSs provide information to all members of the care team. They include those who treat patients, and these changes have placed a greater responsibility and opportunities on the CDIS profession meaning that these team members are at the center of any care organization's successful transition to value-based care. There are several key characteristics that define a CDIS professional that can succeed and excel in an advanced functional role. And that, I think, is part of the language that we need to refer to for clinical documentation integrity specialists is that it has become an advanced practice role. I would say that agility is key, and this must be combined combined with an ability to lead. Lead the organization, help set policies and procedures that prevent costly denials. Set policies that will improve coding compliance and address shifting quality improvement needs. Additionally, additionally senior level clinical expertise and critical thinking skills should be combined with strong project management and a demonstrated ability to communicate well with physicians and other healthcare providers regarding clinical encounters. So, it's very important to have a high level of clinical expertise to be able to identify documentation opportunities that will not only improve reimbursement compliance, but also that clinical story that patients all deserve. And finally, what I wanted to bring up was that the right advanced practice CDIS professionals will be profici- proficient in harnessing the power of existing and emerging technologies to analyze and derive insights, be able to solve problems, and establish new programs. Today's computer-assisted solutions are increasingly, it's like warp speed now, uh, that um, that's coming out in the industry, but CDISs must be able to take advantage of the convergence of artificial intelligence and clinical guidance. And together, these can bring greater accuracy and specificity of clinical details on the point of care, which in the long run is going to benefit uh, quality care, our patients. And I will go ahead and close before I pass this off with a statement that I firmly believe that If clinical documentation was inaccurate when used for billing or legal purposes, it was also wrong when it was used by another clinician, another provider, or transition, a researcher, the public health authority, or quality reporting urgency.
2: Thank you very much, Mel. Our loyal listeners know I always tell folks to tell the story and tell the truth. That was Mel Tully. Mel is Vice President of Clinical Services and Education for the Healthcare Division of Nuance Communication. Chuck?
1: Thank you very much, Erica, and thanks, Mel. You can read Mel's reporting on the evolution of CDI in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monetary News. With physician burnout reported to be widespread and suicides among physicians escalating at alarming rate, do disasters both natural and man made disproportionately impact physicians or are there other conflicts endemic to healthcare that tear at the emotional and mental health physicians? Reporting on Lee's story this morning is Dr. Tracy Sanson, a practicing emergency physician consultant educator. Welcome to the broadcast, Dr. Sanson. Thanks, Chuck. Uh,
5: emergency physicians are on the front lines of healthcare today and facing a threat to their lives. Burnout includes exhaustion, cynicism, and decreased productivity. Greater than 50% of all physicians report at least one symptom of overwhelming exhaustion, deep feelings of cynicism, and a loss of effectiveness. Burnout impacts both our mental and physical health as well, including depression, fatigue, insomnia, hypertension, and both weight loss or gain. Uh, Dr. Tom Mayer is a fellow emergency physician and in his American College of Emergency Medicine text he states, the work of providing emergency department care is extracting a cost we can no longer continue to afford. The burnout rate among emergency physicians is among the highest in all healthcare, afflicting 70% of providers. So what we're finding is we need more than wellness classes and calls to work on our resilience. Simon Talbot and Wendy Dean in a 2018 article titled Physicians Aren't Burning Out, They're Suffering from Moral Injury, state that the concept of burnout resonates really poorly with physicians. It suggests a failure of resourcefulness and resilience, traits that most physicians have finally honed during decades of intense training and demanding work. Dr. Talbot states, um, We believe that burnout is in itself a symptom of something larger, a broken healthcare system, and that uh, the moral injury is driving healthcare ecosystem to a tipping point and about to cause a collapse of resilience. So we need leadership that has the courage to confront and minimize the competing demands that are out there. Physicians should be treated with respect, autonomy, and the authority to make rational, safe, evidence-based, and financially responsible decisions top-down authoritarian mandates on medical practice are degrading and ultimately ineffective. You know, emergency medicine is an incredible field and I'm honored to be an emergency physician and meet people at their time of need. Emergency physicians recognize the acute stressors in our work, Um, ask any of the clinicians treating the synagogue shooting victims. They were trained and prepared to treat those patients. Our angst is when the resources we have don't meet our workload our patients' needs. We spend our time documenting on mandated electronic medical records, completing paperwork, seeking authorization, complying with legislated bureaucratic administrative duties instead of connecting and caring for our patients. And our patients feel this disconnect and bring their frustrations and fears, often leading to anger and incivility directed at nurses and physicians. The rise in verbal and physical assaults on healthcare workers far surpasses any other industry. We need to find a better way of communicating and caring for each other. So I'll end with another quote from my friend, Dr. Tom Mayer, burnout is a silent epidemic which risks consuming our most talented and valuable resources, ourselves and our colleagues. It robs us of the one resource we simply can't do without and that's our passion for our work. This is precisely why the way we're working isn't working. Thank you, Erica and Chuck. I, I really appreciate you opening this dialogue. Erica?
2: Thanks, Tracy. That was my friend, Tracy Sanson. Tracy Sanson, a practicing emergency physician, consultant, and educator, is the founder of Tracy Sanson MD. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Erica. Thank you very much, Tracy, for being with us this morning. And Erica, now's the time to hear your take regarding documentation for medical necessity when it comes to testing in the ED. Erica.
2: Chuck, I belong to a Google group discussion forum for physician advisors to connect and post questions called Rack Relief. It is about utilization review and case management usually, but sometimes there are questions relevant to the CDI and or the emergency department. A question was posed about a patient who presented to the ED with shortness of breath who was diagnosed as anxiety. The B-type natriuretic peptide test, or BNP, was being rejected because anxiety doesn't meet medical necessity. And the questioner wanted to know if it was kosher to code shortness of breath as an additional diagnosis. For those of you who don't know, there are lists of approved diagnoses for studies and procedures. If the code submitted isn't on the list, the payer may deny the claim. This question brings up multiple points. First, can you code a symptom with a definitive diagnosis? The official guidelines state that if a related definitive diagnosis has not been established, codes describing signs and symptoms may be used. If I am not sure whether a patient has gout or not, I would use effusion or joint pain as the, the quote, diagnosis, unquote, to justify, say, a preliminary X-ray. When the arthrocentesis reveals gout, the symptom codes go away because those signs and symptoms are routinely associated with this disease process as per guideline 1B5. Similarly, you wouldn't code cough or fever in a patient with pneumonia. Those signs and symptoms are considered integral to that disease process. In our case, an anxiety disorder does not routinely have shortness of breath as a symptom. And furthermore, you would not draw BNP for anxiety. So it is logical to conclude that both anxiety or probably acute panic attack, which I think is more precise, and shortness of breath should be documented and coded. If a coder wanted to pull the code for the documentation of shortness of breath out of the H&P and code it, even if it weren't explicitly found in the impression list, that would be fine too. But why don't ED docs list all the pertinent diagnoses and make the coder's life easier? Maybe it's because emergency physicians are under a big time crunch and they are concerned, and probably rightly so, that listing all diagnoses would slow them down. Over the course of the day, I imagine it could add up to a modest amount of time, especially if their EHR requires them to navigate to find a diagnosis with a proper code. Specificity does take time, but I think putting mentation back into documentation is how we improve patient care, and thinking about which diagnoses are relevant and important to record improves patient care. It helps keep you organized so you don't miss anything. It also demonstrates more complex medical decision-making if you are taking multiple comorbidities into account and it lets future caregivers know what you were thinking. It is imperative that a reason for every procedure or study can be ascertained. If a patient presents with a sprained ankle and is noted to have an irregular heartbeat, the PVCs found in electrocardiogram are a legitimate justification for the EKG, whereas a sprained ankle isn't. Read my article for my recommendations on best practice documentation. Bottom line, tell the story, tell the truth. Happy Corporate Compliance and Ethics Week.
5: Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thank you very much, Eric. And by the way, you can read Eric's excellent reporting on this very subject in today's edition of the ic to10 Monitor E-News. And that's going to be a wrap for us. This is our 347th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our panelists today, Julie Dooling, Tim Powell, Stanley Knockerson, Mel Tully, and our special guest, Dr. Tracy Sanson. And remember, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Talk 10 Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, on Apple, on Spotify, and Google Play. And hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer. And everybody here at Talk 10 Tuesday, thank you very much for sharing your time with us today. Be sure to go out and vote.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.